0: Hello and welcome to the Wicked Podcast. Today I'm talking again to Professor Keith Grind, Emeritus Professor at the Warwick Business School, Cranfell and Lancaster University, Oxford University and author of books such as Mutiny and Leadership. He is a specialist on wicked problems, one of my favorite subject matters and we're diving very deep into this today and what it means for future organizations. Hope you enjoy. Before the interview, a quick word from our very first sponsor, Sandcaster. We use Sandcaster for all our audio and video recording. And it's a very nifty tool that splits up all the channels for very easy editing. Sandcaster is used by 10% of all active podcasts. You can get 40% off the first three months and unlimited audio and video recordings with our special coupon code WICKEDPODCAST. I repeat, I repeat, I repeat, WICKEDPODCAST for 40% off. And now the interview. Hello, everyone. Today I'm here for the second time with Professor Keith Grant. Hello, Keith, and thank you for being with me again after nearly three years. I think it was the first time we were on here.
1: I can't remember, I can't remember that far back. Yes, thank you. <laughs> As usual,
0: we start at the top. So please tell our listeners who you are and what you do.
1: Okay, so my name is Keith Grint. I'm an Emeritus Professor at Warwick Business School, uh, where I taught for about 12 years. Before that, I taught at um, Cranfield University, Lancaster University, Oxford University, and Brunel University. And before all of that, I had a proper job for about uh, 10 years. And then I uh, switched careers, became an academic, and I've been there ever since. So most of my research, much of my current research, is actually about uh, leadership and some of that has been locked into wicked problems. I've just published a book last year on uh, mutinies and I've just finished a book. And I'm just editing it now on um, resistance and leadership. That's me.
0: Wonderful. Yes. And the first time we talked uh, a fair bit about wicked problems and we'll obviously further do today. So tell us, for the ones who don't know what they are, a bit about wicked problems, maybe in relationship with the leadership and the mutiny you just Mentioned,
1: please. OK, so um, if, if you take the original work on wicked problems from Rittle and Weber, they um, they argue that you could divide the, the world's problems into two, tame and wicked. Tame were problems that we knew how to solve. They were kind of standard operating procedures for fixing them, how you kept the lights on, that kind of stuff. And wicked problems were at that point beyond us. We didn't really know how to deal with them. There wasn't any standard procedures for fixing them. Uh, And therefore, we had to approach them in a a very different way. So that was the original work in the 1970s. Uh, They were into kind of public services in the the US. Uh, I took some of their original ideas and extended them slightly. So I added a third category of problems, which I call critical problems. And I associated those now three um, versions of the problem, tame, wicked and critical, with three different decision styles. So critical problems are associated with command as a kind of coercive response. Uh, Tame problems are associated with management because we knew how to deal with them. And the role of the manager was simply to deploy existing resources and follow procedures. And wicked problems, I suggested, required leadership in the way that I defined it at the time, which was actually a much more collaborative and collective response. So wicked problems are problems we don't know how to solve, and neither does the leader, otherwise wouldn't be wicked problems so their responsibility was to uh, generate some kind of collective response and to admit uh, a a general level of ignorance about how to fix these problems so we have uh, 10 wicked and critical problems uh, management uh, command and leadership and i suggested you could model these for different kinds of of areas so um for example you could you could model them either in a domestic environment or my some of the current work I've been doing is trying to model those uh, in terms of uh, climate change and climate crisis and thinking about you know, which aspect of that is tame, which is wicked and which is critical and therefore what needs to happen on the basis of the, uh, the typology that I developed.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for that. So I think, uh, let me pull in a bit to so, uh, the fact that you just talked about leadership and the fact that I want to bring in a bit bits and pieces, as much as I can talk about it, examples of uh, a big project I'm working on at the moment where surely there are a good problem, in my opinion. It's a, it's a massive global organization. As, as a leader, therefore, you said sort of, you talked about you know collaborative or collective approach. As a leader or as part of a more senior member of an organization, who would you go to, who would you kind of bring together to to, to help solve these things? Because I think the question is always, when there's something new out there, challenge organizations go and say okay we have to build a team we have to put a program together or something like that in order to address a certain thing, a signal or something that is already identified as some kind of problem and they might know this in some shape or form not have a full understanding of it but normally leaders go okay who am I going to put on this who would be the right people to put on that in terms of is there any particular practice or particular skill set yeah. particular knowledge you need for wicked problems in particular you would say well people are Maybe better than, let's say, managers that you associated a bit more with team problems, being probably good at that, um, to 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 bring together and associate with.
1: So I, th- I think the basic framework is to assume that. Um if there are any answers they're likely to be in unusual places in the organization they're likely they're as likely to be at the bottom of the hierarchy as they are at the top of the hierarchy so what you're really looking for is local experts rather than uh, people within a hierarchy so the hierarchy is virtually relevant to trying to resolve a wicked problem in this sense that the that the skill set that you need might be all over the organization the the second point of that is to recognize um, that unless you have a common language to be able to frame this material then nothing's going to make much progress so and, and unless everybody can understand what a wicked problem is then you're likely to get people who would respond by saying well you know you're the formal leader you're supposed to know the answer to this but i think a wicked problem is beyond any of us so to be able to to get a group together to work on us on an issue like this you need to be able to to get them to understand a common language by which we frame problems in certain kinds of ways. Once we can understand that, then we can be able, then we can say, so this is a tame problem. And given your expertise, you need to be able to go away and fix it because we know you're good at that. But given this is a wicked problem, and I'm assuming we can have a discussion about whether this is a wicked problem, we're probably going to need everybody's expertise because no single person is going to have the answer to this. or it's unlikely to have the answer to this. The other point about this is that we're also unlikely to have a consensus because people see the world differently uh, so it it may well be that we're not going to get to the point where a consensus emerges as what as to what the problem is or even what the solution is and that I think is is where the kind of the kind of um, dialectical issues about leadership <laughs> sit because even though, as a leader facing a wicker problem, you need to recruit a team to be able to understand how you might make some progress with this. At some point, unless there is a consensus and, and unless a single answer does emerge, which is unlikely, if that doesn't emerge, then as the as the formal decision maker, you still have the responsibility to make the decision. You can't just keep assuming this is a wicked problem, we can keep discussing this forever. Uh, and I think um, the climate problems at the moment are a good example of this. We have been discussing climate problems for at least 50 years. And I think originally, I think everybody agreed, well, it's not quite sure what we're doing with this. So it was a wicked problem almost from the beginning. But we still regard it as a wicked problem in the sense of, Well, what we need is more information before we make any certain steps. Or what we need to do is set a target in 2050, by which time something needs to happen. And that kind of pushing the decision making away is in itself part of the wicked nature of the problem. Because unless we configure time differently, then we're never going to be able to make any progress with these things. And what is a wicked problem at the moment for most people, i.e. climate change, will become a critical problem and the, and the point at which we start discussing and debating it will be gone and we will no longer be saying no it would be really good if you could actually stop using aircraft and just or bought an electric car or stop eating meat that those those points those suggestions will now will then turn into you will not be using your car and you will not be flying anywhere because we, we're beyond the point now so I, I think what what's interesting and i think you use this word quite this Uh, this term quite a few times is that wicked problems are moving targets and as you don't as you interfere with them they change and they might well change from being wicked to being critical or being both at the same time and that notion of us having to coerce people rather than just engage them in some kind of collaborative effort is a really important part of trying to understand what will happen to this problem if we don't do something with it
0: yeah and you mentioned earlier in your answer and I want to go a little bit back to that because you mentioned language that needs to be agreed on across or an understanding needs to be established and you need you, you mentioned local specialists. I want to pick up a little bit on that because from my perspective, often when I look at this and um, um, I often perceive my own practice as being quite a amalgamation of a lot, a lot of different things and less being a hyper-specialized uh, uh, practice. However, I've met a lot of specialisms sitting in a lot of silos and a lot of organizations. So we I would go to a bigger group of people, they're specialists, anything from process specialists to technology specialists to business analysts, and, and they all have different models and all have different language. So they all have their own little language that they don't seem to really share that much with others, which then you put three or four in a room. There's no consensus because everyone wants their model to be the one model. And, uh, you know, it takes hours and hours to agree on what's an artifact and what's an output and X, Y, Z. And it, it, it causes a lot of trouble. Um, so my question is therefore, is it therefore maybe we talk about specialists and a lot of organizations hire a lot of, spe- I mean, right now, they're probably hiring a lot of AI specialists and think that's gonna solve something. Uh, and I'm sure it will to some extent, but you know probably not as much as everyone's promising. There's still this reliance on these specialist people as an idea that that's a solution in disguise, are we better off with generalists in that sense? And is there a differentiation? Or where does the specialist maybe start? Or where's the generalist come in as a, as a benefit, where a specialist might literally have run out of ideas and is just sitting in a silent, it will not be the future of problem solving.
1: So I think usually wicked problems can be addressed best by having a, an accumulation of different kinds of skills and specialists involved, and generalists even, because it, it's unlikely that any individual will have the answer to the problem that you're looking at. But it's likely that that many people will be able to contribute something towards that solution, or at least towards that amelioration of the problem. So, so perhaps the issue is to is to think about it in this way that what specialists tend to do is treat problems. As technical or tame problems. So, if you apply enough specialists, so for example, if you apply enough Mm -hmm. business consultants to a business problem, you'll be able to fix it, irrespective of the problem. If you throw enough resource at it, you'll be able to fix it, because ultimately all problems are tame problems and they're problems that are accessible through specialisms. But we know that wiki problems are not that kind of a problem. They're not about specialisms, they're really about a much more general issue. So, Again, if you go back to climate change, it's, it's not as if so, – so the specialists for climate change would say, well, what we need is, is more um, particularly sophisticated methods of carbon capture. Yeah. That's a technical response to a problem. But we also know that that is in itself insufficient. We do need carbon capture machinery and technologies, but we also need lots of people to stop doing what they're currently doing and do something different. And that's not about specialism. That's about a political persuasive mechanism that requires us all to do something about it. And we also know that what most people do when they think about, you know, how can I help? How can I help with the climate problem? Well, what I can do is what everybody else does. And I know this is really important. What I'll do is I'll sift through my uh, recycling. I'll keep plastics out and I'll, ma- I'll manage to recycle all the paper and the cardboard because that's, um, that's a really important contribution. And we know that that's a really unimportant contribution. That isn't going to solve any kind of problem. But most people, when you ask them and ask them, you know, what are they doing with regard to the climate problem? They'll say things. I'm doing really important things like sifting through my rubbish. And we know that the really important things are not sifting through the rubbish. The really important things are you know, not flying, not eating meat, Not having children, not driving cars, all those kinds of things that actually are the 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 last thing we are going to do. So what the climate change requires us to do is things that actually are quite painful for many of us, and we try to avoid that. And the longer we avoid it, the worse it becomes. This is um this is a way of thinking about the problems in two different time sequences. You know, one is a temporal time sequence and one is a, a cyclical time sequence. And quite often you hear people say things like, well, what we need to do is that by the time we get to 2050, this is a linear pattern of time, by the time we get to 2050, we'll have done X, Y, and Z, and so we'll have saved the world. But actually, if we don't do something now, there won't be a world to save in 2050. So we have to we have to reconstruct our notions of time from linear to cyclical, to the point where actually, if we don't do something now, there won't be a 2050. So the way that we configure time is a really important point of trying to understand why we don't get engaged with these kinds of issues. Because we see things like, oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll do that next week. It's, it's almost a mirror of some of the research that I've seen about how people cope with things like domestic violence. And when you hear victims of domestic violence, quite a lot of them will say things like, you know, in, in response to police questioning, but why, why didn't you do something about this man before Or why don't you do something now? Some of them will say things like, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give him till his birthday or I'm going to give him till Valentine's Day or I'm going to give him the the, the time to do his his course on anger management. So this is a kind of linear pattern. And at some point in the future, things will be different and everything will be fine. But we actually know that for many of these people, what they should be thinking about is is time is cyclical. He, in this case... (laughs) is never going to change. And until you understand that, you'll always be stuck in this cycle. So, And I think it's the same with climate change. We have to get beyond the the linear path and start thinking about the the cyclical path. We have to understand that problem needs us to do stuff now, not needs to do stuff in 10 years or five years or 20 years down the line. And and I think the, the longer that goes on, the worse it becomes. And it switches from what is now for many people, a wicked problem and for some, a critical problem. And you see that in the, the current floods and the, and the burnings. It, it will be a critical problem for all of us. And at that point, there won't be, there won't be a collaborative logistic effort. There will be a coercive effort by governments yeah. or whoever yeah. telling us what we can no longer do
0: yeah i mean it's 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 interesting because it, it reminds me as well of something a bit that is probably a bit more mundane but literally going back to my project as well the same thing the change of behavior is often what really is just not happening it's like the, the, the different look at it and like getting to a space where you would feel discomfort and we all know from psychology you know our brain has a tendency to avoid discomfort as much as it possibly can so maybe that's not surprising but it doesn't help us in this case because i see in the project that you know, when I say this, this, and that gets me to the next question. There's often an abstraction level that I've seen with organizations, groups of people, where they look at a lot of a lot of quantitative information. It's very abstract, and no one would actually go. So, hang on a second. Have you actually stepped outside the door, went there, and had a look? It's like, oh no, we don't have time for that. We need to do stuff, which seems to be the opposite of what you are describing, but I think it's actually the same, where you say the same, they maintain the same behavior. They would not step out of the comfort zone and go, no, let's have a look at this again. It's not going to be comfortable. You're going to have to learn new stuff. You're going to have to consider different viewpoints that might challenge your understanding of how things are done and what we're supposed to be doing. And they avoid it. They're just, oh, no, but that's that's thinking. We don't have to think, and we can't do that much thinking. Listening is going to hold us back. Then we're not doing stuff, but we need to do stuff. So, do you feel there's there's sort of um, which is another part, so an abstraction level of as as a distance and comfort level uh, of people often to that to the reality of wicked problems? Because I can imagine, you know, let's say two three decades ago, before internet and computers, it was even even harder to actually get in contact with reality and amass enough information to have. Some more de risk kind of decision making. Whereas now, it's all up for grabs, pretty cheap to actually engage with it, collect a lot of data in a way more granular level, way more closer to reality than ever before. And people are still not doing it, they're still avoiding it. So, in terms of staying away from those wicked problems is that is that sort of a thing is there is there discomfort is there is that a lack of skill is that a lack of mindset what what you know why we're not engaging with those why we're giving so easily up on those even when we probably know and i've met people who say like yeah we know it's complicated and it's more complicated than for than it is for us so um do you you see something there as well so as an avoidance or that's just too far in terms of proximity we just need to change proximity to these things.
1: I I I think it's partly understood best in terms of thinking about how do you persuade people to change, you know, what what is the persuasive Mm. mechanism? So partly that's to do with um, language and partly it's to do with the kind of narrative that flows out of the language. So so the language is important in, in terms of trying to think about how we understand the world. So for example, we talk about the sun rising in the morning and going down in the evening, mm-hmm. but the, but the sun doesn't rise and it doesn't go down. The Earth is the one that's changing, mm-hmm. not the sun. But because our language predates yeah. that kind of understanding of how the oh, yeah, how the solar system works, we talk about it in a particular kind of way that actually makes a nonsense of of reality, <laughs> and that and that that also runs into a, a thing about. So what is it that persuades people to do something or not to do something? And, and I'm always, I always recall the kind of Brexit campaign that we had in this country mm. in 2016, which was a combination of, of two different sides. On on the on the Remain side, and this this flows into your discussion a second ago about we've got all this data. On the Remain side, they basically said, look, we've got all this data, and what will happen is that if we leave then all of these sums will go somewhere and they'll all go slightly worse. And it would be better to stay in the EU than it would be to move. Look at all this data. Look at all these numbers. Surely that would persuade you. And we know that most people are not persuaded by numbers. What they're persuaded by is really um, kind of banal little statements like, uh, let's get Brexit done or things on the side of a bus which says £350 million to the NHS, things that actually don't make any sense yeah. but are really persuasive. And I think the Remain campaign failed because it didn't understand the importance of the narrative. Yeah. That's what won it. And I think we are in the same place now. So you're going back to your teams with the data. What they don't understand is the data doesn't persuade people. Mm-hmm. The narrative is the thing that persuades people. And that can be really a really simple three-word slogan that gets people moving, like, for example, with, with Barack Obama's uh, time for a change. Yeah. Well, what the hell does time for a change mean? It can mean anything to anybody. And that's the point. What time for a change did in his first presidential campaign was, was run all these people that were fed up for all kinds of different reasons into one little river, which said, yeah, let's go with, I think I'm I'm ready for a change. Only when he got into power and said, oh, by the way, this is what I meant by change, did people say, oh, no, I didn't mean that. But it's too late because you voted for them. So I think that notion of being able to simplify really complex problems down to really simple narratives and persuasive narratives is what's missing from the the current debates. And and it's still the case. We still do this. We still think we still look at the numbers and say, look, look at these numbers in 2050. Look at these. Look at this percentage change as opposed to some really basic issues. And it gets go back to, to the language thing. I, this is something I didn't realise until um, a, a short time ago when I was reading about, because my first teaching, which involved wicked problems and climate change, I used to put things like global warming on the text. So
0: mm-hmm. this is a,
1: this is an example of a, a wicked problem. Here's global warming. And I describe these kinds of issues. And then, slowly but surely i began to change my global warming to climate change because that was what everybody was talking about i thought oh well i'll just use climate change without actually understanding where did that where did the phrase come from and it came from a guy called frank luntz who was um you know bush's advisor Mm -hmm. who told bush that global warming was a really frightening phrase and climate change wasn't a frightening phrase so, so to be able to get people on board, what you want is this less frightening phrase. So now what we have done is we've lost this notion. And, uh, and you can see how people are now trying to claw that by, by talking about a climate emergency. Yeah. So that the language that we use is a really important way to understand why people do or they don't actually make changes in their patterns of behaviour. Because if it's just a climate change, well, to be frank, in England we could do the bit of a climate change because it's usually <laughs> bloody raining. But if you say this is a climate emergency, and this is what rain does to places, yeah. or this is what continuous heat does to places. And that's a different understanding of what the words mean.
0: Yeah, it's definitely. And I mean, if you look at back at other campaigns as well, including like, you know, sending a man to the moon and all these things, they all have a positive spin on it, right? There's something positive to buy into rather than, oh, these things just kind of plain old scare you, right? You need to give something. And I think this is the same with the leave campaign, right? They gave people an option like, if you leave as much as, and there was a lot of, uh, argument around, you know, foreigners, and you know, uh, immigrants and that stuff that are scary. But the promise was this will be better. There's a positive at the end, if you do this, right. And I think that also translates quite nicely to and I'm literally going to have a session tomorrow about the comms, the communication around the change project I'm working on at the moment, which at the moment has a very, very dull name. Uh, and we're working tomorrow on something like we need something a bit that excites people. We can't just say, oh, we're going to do this technological thing that doesn't work and we're going to turn it into something that works. And you should all get excited about it. That's not exciting. No one gets excited about tech in your job, right? It's about what it does for you. Yeah. What's at the other end? What's the positive at the other end? What's the light at the end of the tunnel? And so we're going to try to find that tomorrow in context of the thing we're doing. Because I found as well, and I think what you're describing is essentially, you know, You need to be able to create a movement to get enough different kinds of people on board to actually address these wicked problems. It's the same with some of these big change transformation projects, which are often still being chased as sort of a numbers thing. And then they fall flat because no one wants them. People get scared. They get change fatigue. They don't want new stuff because they don't. Most questions are, well, what's in it for me? How is that going to make my life better? You're going to make it worse because I don't know what this will be. You just throw a lot of jargon at me. That I don't know what it is, that's scary and goes totally to your point. You know, if you're something that bottom line feels scary for
1: people, they're not going to go for it.
0: They're going to oppose it, even if it doesn't make any sense for them. Right?
1: No, and there, there, there is a lot. Yeah, no, there's, there, there's a lot of research that, that scaring people doesn't make them change. What people do when they're scared is they just ignore it because it's yeah. too scary. Yeah. So rather yeah. than thinking, oh, this, the, you know, floods and fire are really scary, I should do something, they think, you know what, it's so scary, I don't even want to look at it. I'm just going <laughs> to exactly. live my little life yeah. as it is.
0: Ignore the news. Ignore the news. I don't want to do it. there's deal nothing I that. can do about yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. So, okay. So um, we always have more questions than we have time, and it's the same yet again. Um, so I, uh, let's start with the last question, which is a little bit more of a – I thought i go a bit further out of the usual box and say – if I would give you a ton of money, enough money for doing whatever it might be in your head, and you look at wicked problems, what would you do tomorrow with that to help the world better deal with these kind of things? What what would be sort of, you know, is it is it in how you group teams? Is it teams? Is it groups of people? Is it mindset? Is it, is it an academy? Is it, I have no idea. And I know I'm probably, throwing you into cold water with that because i don't think anyone ever approached you and said here's 100 million pounds what do you want to do with it um what would you do if you could do anything where you go <laughs> like here's a big splash if i could if i had all the resources for it what do you think might nudge things in the best possible way
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I think there's, there was, I was reflecting on this question before, and it, and it kind of reminded me of, you know, at the end of the Second World War, that the whole of Europe is absolutely devastated, and it's desperately in need of something, and no one quite knows what. And then the Marshall Plan comes up, mm. and the Americans say, look, here's a lot of money, you can all rebuild your economy, yeah. especially because we need you all. We need you all to be up and running. We don't need you to be flat on your back anymore. And so there's something about that kind of that positive practical help, and I think there is something in there about we, we have enough we have enough data. We we know what's going on. It's not as if we need more research on what is going wrong. What we need is more research to be able to understand, you know how we can do something and what actually works on the ground, and and that kind of brings up uh, the kind of positive deviance. A technique which is used by quite a lot of people, which is to start from the start from the question. So, who, who is it in the world or the organisation that has already fixed some of these problems, and can we learn from that? Rather than starting in some kind of academic institute and working out theoretically what might work, what we need to do is think about which groups have practically addressed these problems and done something which we might be able to mobilise and expand. So, for example, in the positive deviance. Um, cases there's one example which I think is quite interesting here, which is the the problem they're looking at is how can we keep lots of Argentinian school kids in rural Argentinian schools to stay at school beyond the ages of fourteen i e until they're sixteen because they keep getting taken out by their parents at fourteen to help with agriculture because yeah. it's an agricultural society. Mm-hmm. And what they have, what they traditionally did was look from um, look from an expert from some university or central government thing, and this time they said, "No, that, let's not bother with this. Let's try and find some schools that have got over ninety percent of children at fourteen staying on at school. What is it that they are doing that all the other schools are not doing?" And they found two or three, and all of them, independently from each other, had decided to change the curriculum to make the curriculum more. Agriculturally focused, so they were teaching fourteen-year-old children how to he- how to help their parents fill up forms to get government subsidies. Oh, wow! And also to improve their own agricultural practice. So it was yeah. in the interest of the parents to keep the kids at school. So this becomes a self-fulfilling <laughs> cycle. Yeah, yeah, And I think there's something in there about you know, which are the areas, which are the countries, which are the places, which are the organizations or the groups that are already doing stuff that we know works. And can we then activate those at a wider scale? And that, So I, I think it's it's much more of a kind of practice-based response rather than a theoretical-based response, because we know what the theory is. We know what the problems are. What we don't know is what actually works on the ground. And can we expand that? And can we do it really quickly?
0: Absolutely. I mean, that sounds great. And I think that just runs because I was, I was in a talk yesterday of a friend of mine who we used to study with dean who was talking a lot about experiments and experimentation and you know he's a practitioner like me in design thinking and all they do is that we test things but we test things in reality like so we're looking at first thing identify the needs and in your in your example that's basically perfectly saying i'm not trying to convince the parents about how good the school is i'm actually trying to solve the problem that the parents have which is subsidies and helping with the farming through the school So that is always sort of, that's a very design thinking approach of like identifying needs, doing that. And the other part is experimenting with it and trying things and say, okay, if that's what the problem is, why don't we try it? And uh, Dean was giving a couple of great examples where in two or three cases they were just out there. One was for the Imperial War Museum, a couple of other ones. They would mock things up and just try it and literally behave as if this thing exists and see what happens, see if people are interested and see if people are, you know, getting into it. And then if it does, then do it. And a lot of these things seem to be quite locally based on, on as we yeah, know, wicked I problems th- are not recipes. They don't work. You know, yeah. one thing I do in Germany is not going to work in Japan just because there's different contexts and, and, and different groups of people. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Sounds- yeah. I, I think, I, I mean, ultimately, ultimately these, these things are kind of prototyping <laughs> approaches, which is what we need yeah. to do. And I think, I think the fundamental problem with all of that is the way that we treat mistakes errors and failures yeah. because we punish people that do all that kind of stuff we pick yeah. because we don't allow people to fail and learn from failure we're never going to be able to get out of this problem yeah. if the w- wicked problems by definition are uh, ones that we don't know what will work and therefore we have to be able to prototype our way out of this this is that this is the way that science works it doesn't yeah. work by proving stuff it makes yeah. itself more <laughs> robust by Disproving things by yeah. seeing that things fail, and I think we need to adopt that much more overtly and, and try to recognize that um, what we're currently doing isn't working. Let's try something else.
0: Exactly, because the other, the other, op- the other option would be what's described as insanity, right? So <laughs> there we go with that. Um, lovely. Thank you so much, Keith. Again for your time. Second time around. Let's see, uh, three years, third time done. That's does the charm, doesn't it? See where we are. Uh, very, good luck with your <laughs> books. Um, when, when do you think the second one, the, the, the one you're yeah. editing, briefing around, is? Do you, do you know when it's going to come out?
1: So probably um, early next year, I would have thought, by the time we get it through all the systems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we come out. Yeah, early next year. Spring next sounds year. Sounds
0: good, sounds good. Well, definitely let me know. And uh, happy to have you on for that, talk about that in particular. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for being here. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to The Wicked Podcast with co-host Marcus Kirsch and me, Troy Norcross. Please subscribe on Podomatic, iTunes, or Spotify. You can find all relevant links in the show notes. Please tell us your thoughts in the comment section and let us know about any books for future episodes. You can also get in touch with us directly on Twitter on at Wicked and
1: Beyond or at Troy underscore Norcross. Also, learn more about the Wicked Company book and the Wicked Company project at wickedcompany.com.